You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Jason, are you there? I'm here, my friend. Sweet. How's it going? It's going very well today. How's your Friday going? I'm doing awesome. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about analytics stuff. Is it Wild McLean or Whale McLean? I say Wheel McLean. So if I've been saying it wrong, I've been saying it wrong for a while. <laughs> <laughs> As I recall from my musical training, I think in German, the second syllable is the one that says its name. So I guess it would be Wild McLean, like if it was W E. W-I-E-L, it'd be wheel. But I don't know. You yes. Know, get anglicized as they come over the pond. So. <laughs> I'm going to go with you on that one. You sound like an expert. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, you sound like an expert. An analytics whale, McLean. We'll call it whale, McLean. Tell us about what you're doing over there. So we met on LinkedIn. I, I've been enjoying you know, your postings in the social feed, just kind of about your approach. And just you, you seem really passionate about what you're doing. I'm like, I don't know who this guy yeah. is. Sounds really interesting, and so I thought you were to have. So t- tell us about the company, what they do. I know they're in heating, right? And it, but to give us the- yes, yeah, absolutely. So a company I work for, uh, we're in the HVAC space. We're a 135 year old boiler manufacturer. So whether you realize it or not, you probably have one of our products either in your house or building or very close to where you live. Uh, and really, what uh, my team and I do is we really help companies uh, weaponize their data assets. As you know, a lot of companies are very skilled at acquiring data, hence the big data movement. But the reality is that a lot of these companies don't know what to do with all this data. And that's really where we come in. And our angle is really, as I always tell my team and, and our business partners that we work with internally and externally, is that our focus is on solving business problems. So it's really, in order to do that, you have to identify what is the business problem that you're trying to solve for, a strategic agenda that you're trying to address. And in order to do that, you really have to be anchored in the business. Again, that's just my perspective. But if you're in the business day in, day out, you have a, you, you develop this very keen sense of what the business would need to accomplish this objectives. And so that's like right now, we are based in the marketing group. And it's a great spot to be. I'm a firm believer that every analytics team should be based in the business for the reasons I just talked about. But what that does, being business first, is that gives us a great lens to look at data from, you know, sometimes analytics teams will be IT centric and they can do a lot of academic work against the data set or different data sets, but the business might look at the output and be like, yeah, that doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. We always focus on, we always, always, always start with what is the business problem that we're, or strategy, business problem we're trying to solve or strategy we're looking to address. And that also helps us when it comes to curating data also, because that's one of our primary responsibilities too is to look for different data sets, both internal and external, that can help us identify strategic opportunities. So as I say, it's, it's one of those where it sounds really unsexy. I'm not going to lie. I think on my LinkedIn post yesterday, but data is boring. It really <laughs> is. We try to, we, it's, it's mind-numbing to about 85% of my customers. But that's the important part is understanding what do our customers need. And that's really the lens that we look at this through is that we are a service provider. Our customers are internal and external. We have customers just like any other business. And so we need to take this really boring 
but really potent products and data and make it accessible to them. And that's really where we use design to really try to, you know, make that magic happen. I love that you said, you know, trying to understand what the problem is. This is something we talk about on the mailing list quite a bit is, in fact, falling in love with the problem is a good basis for doing good work instead of, you know, kind of jumping to solutions or feeling that, you know, as I tell my clients sometimes, like our, our job is not to go and visualize the data. That's not, it's not like get it available for someone to put into another tool or Excel or whatever the heck it is. The job is to find an insight that, that, that already is using, probably they're already doing their job and you're there to make, you know, if you're doing internal analytics, you know, help them do a better job at what they're doing, deliver more value. Yeah. You need to figure out how to work that into their life. So like, for, for example, for you guys, then your customer, I assume, is it primarily sales? people that you're working with like who who are your customers and your yes great question great question so yeah our one of our biggest customers is sales and sales has been one of my biggest customers for the past 10 years of my career been very intimately involved with the sales team sales operations sales optimization insight gathering pricing things like that but also marketing we do a lot in terms of competitive intelligence gathering market research we also do a lot with operations in finance, obviously related to the uh, price management side of things. So we really touch all areas of the business. But without question, our biggest our biggest customers are going to be sales and marketing. If you were to bring a new initiative, like, hey, we have, I don't know, like we have access to, you know, so, I don't know what it might be, but for, for you, maybe you're pulling yeah. a pipeline of data that could actually give them more leverage. And, you know, we know what the negotiation rate be better than it be. we we know we kind of have an idea now from what the industry is doing with sales such that we know we can now tell the CRM like this is your room or something. Do you get like when do you get that salesperson involved? Like do you kind of deliver a solution and get feedback? Do you bring them early and say, hey, we think we can we can you know tell you more about how to do better pricing on the spot with this thing? Do you bring them in or like how, when do they kind of fit into your process? Great, great question. Yeah, so a lot of times because we spend so much time uh, actually in the trenches, that's one of the things that I think is unique about the way that I design my teams to do analytics. Is it's not like handoff product and we're like, God, good luck. Is that once we deliver a solution, we're actually in the trenches with the business trying to implement what we're talking about because it just works better. The teamwork is just, you're more effective and they know that they've got backup. They know that they've got you know air support. And so really, a lot of times when we come up with something new, a lot of times we will frame it from the lens that, hey, we know that we've got opportunity A or issue B or whatever it is. This has been an issue or an opportunity for months or years or whatever. We think that we've identified something that could help us in solving that issue or realizing that the potential of that opportunity. And then it becomes, you know, okay, let's sit down and talk about, do you agree that this might actually help us in this process. Because the one thing that I've learned is in order to get buy-in, you, you really, really got to have your business case, even to your internal customers, really dialed in. If you just bring them a bunch of crap, after a while, you're going to lose credibility with them. They're going to be like, I don't have the time to waste with you, even though we're trying to help them. Right. And what we found out is that if you really dial in, what are we trying to address with this? Just as you would with any business case, and you bring that to them, I have found that they tend to be much more receptive. It's not to say there's not going to be resistance. Resistance with any comes with any change. But we found that typically 
framing it from that lens of saying, we're trying to solve a problem that you have. We think that this data will help. That's a great starting point. Do you have an example of like a before after with that? Like, I don't know how much, I don't want you to get into proprietary stuff you can't talk about, but is there like a, you know, before they did it this way and then, you know, we brought them in and said, hey, we think we could give you X. And, and how you win. Yeah, I can, the one I can talk about is just the manner in which we distribute sales information, specifically insights. And I think that for your listeners, this is going to ring true to a lot of sales forces. I know for all of them that I've been in or worked with, this case was true 100% of the time. But one of the things that, again, keeping the customer-centric focus is that if you look at your sales reps, a lot of times they're going to be what I call casual data consumers. And by that, I mean that these are guys that guys and gals that aren't really into data day in and day out, like guys like you and I or some of your listeners. Maybe. So what we have to do is, because I always encourage my team to take an empathetic lens and look at, okay, if we give them what we're, our first cut is going to look like, how are they going to interpret this? And a lot of times, to be honest, it's not very good. So now that's where we have to look at internally and kind of and kind of rationalize and say, okay, let's, let's find this more, let's find this more. But one example of that is traditionally sales reps and sales teams will get their information in a flat Excel table, you know, just lots of rows and columns and just gibberish everywhere. And that's a very financial centric view of sales data. But the reality is, and I don't know about the rest of mankind, but I know for myself, I can't remember much more than 10 numbers. And the mental computational cost of extracting insights is just gargantuan. So what happens is I just don't even bother to do it. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. And it's kind of an equivalent is that, you know, if you get a big block of text in email, even though if you took that same block of text and broke it up into, you know, two paragraphs or two sentence segments, it'd be very easy to read and you put the effort in it. But for me, if I get a big block of text, it's like, I'm not even going to read that. It's kind of one of the same things that we see on the sales side. And so what we do is we say, you know what? There's a lot of really good information here, and we need to make it digestible for our customers. So that's where we found traditionally visualization can be an incredibly effective tool to communicate insights to this casual data audience, to this casual data consumer. Do you have to work through the visuals with them? Do they, do they tend to get it the first time, or is it a process of like you share, you know, here's a report or here's some new view on X? And do like how do you how do you know if the visualization is actually allowing them to pull the insight out of what would other yeah. raw data? How, how do you know they're actually quote getting it? That's a great question. And so what we do because I'm a huge fan of simplicity. As you know, analytics pros, we could very easily make very complex, very intricate models, and you know just you know, oh look how smart we are. It doesn't help our customers. It doesn't it doesn't help anything. So. Really what we, we do, and again, it gets to the theme of simplicity, is we only use about two or three different visual types, and we use almost the exact same visual setup. Just to kind of frame it, what I'm a big fan of is a simple bar chart, and then you know there's more details attached to it, but to the right of the bar chart, we'll typically put a tabular uh, data set. Mm-hmm. And the goal of this is really what we do is, you know, as you think, uh, in the U.S. at least, we start in that left-hand side of the page and we go to the right. And so what we do is we look at the visual real estate. We say, our customers are going to start on the left-hand side. So we want them to look at the bar chart because it allows them to very rapidly assimilate at a high level what's going on. 
it's great at communicating a top-level trend very quickly, but the trade-off is, is it's horrible in precision. You have no precision at all. And so what we like to do is then we take, we address that issue by putting a simple table, very clean, very simple table over to the right. And then what that does is then that provides the precision that they're accustomed to seeing in those financial-centric tables. And what we found that does is that we have to train our sales team on one setup and then that setup is used virtually universally in all of our solutions. So as an example, you know, I can train a sales rep probably five minutes on all of our reporting because if you understand one, you're going to understand everything. And that gets to the theme again of just simplicity. Don't overcomplicate, keep it simple, keep it clean. Yeah, no, I think those are good. A lot of times when I work with engineering clients, they fall in love with consistency and will pull out, like, I guess one, one point to maybe to the contrary of this is that I think consistency is generally a good rule with design. We want to minimize unnecessary change. But at the same time, I, I would recommend to listeners is to always look at context first and context should always yeah. win. You know, let's say, you know, Jason comes out with report number 12 and they have 11 now or whatever, and it doesn't feel right for number 11. That's a place where a designer, we'd probably push for, well, no, the 12th one actually needs to be different because it doesn't, it's not uh, yeah. 11th. And even though it's not consistent in this context, we need context to win. We, we need this. We don't need it to win. This version will deliver the usability and the utility that we're looking for better than the other 11 will. So in general, I, I, I think it's smart to not get creative unnecessarily with a meaningless, you know, ink on the screen. Yeah. Like, let's try it this way. Let's change the color palette. Let's do it. Like, I'm tired yeah. of this, you know. Those are not good reasons. <laughs> That's just, you're introducing noise and it's unnecessary. But I like that you guys are thinking about simplicity and trying to reuse templates and, and not looking at it as a creative, you know, Tableau is not a creative tool to I, ironically, it's it's quote people think it's a create it's a design tool, right? But like at the same time, with all those weapons, you have a lot of like different <laughs> weapons you can use yeah. in that toolkit. And part of that is knowing how to use. It's the same thing with Photoshop, yes. million buttons, and all this kind of stuff. The Photoshop doesn't yep. make you a designer. It's being aware of your customers' pain and the problems they need, and knowing when to use all those filters and all those different things it can do. So I like that you guys are looking for that simplicity and you know, reusing uh, templates when it's, when it's meaningful to do so. So that's, that's, now, you, you bring up some great points and, and I a hundred percent agree. Uh, if my team is listening to this, I'll laugh because I beat it in their heads. Context, 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 both in design as you've talked about, but especially with numbers in general, like if I give you a number of billion, don't need anything. You gotta have context. And I'd say the same is true for design, just as you articulate. So great sure. point. Where does the impetus for, Everybody, quote, is a data company. Everybody wants to do analytics. But then there's operationalizing that. There's getting buy-in, like leadership behind it. Where does that come from in your org? Like, wh where's the interest in taking a 130-year-old company and getting it to care about, about this? Where does that come from, your influence and all of that? That was driven by our current president. He saw it as part of the digital transformation. Obviously, this is an essential component of that. So... Obviously, we do a lot with analytics, but we're also involved in a lot of other digital components related to that overall digital maturation. So analytics is a very, very big part of what we do, but it's not all that we do. So we serve as kind of that quarterback for a lot of these digital initiatives to help, you know, basically guide them through the process. Because even though some of the, the nuances of each of these projects, you know, each one will have its own nuances, 
they all come back to data. Data is the currency. And so we find out pretty quickly that if you want to stay relevant in this day and age, you need to digitally evolve. But more importantly is that, you know, as you look at it, the competitive advantage that you can derive from analytics, I would argue that gap is slowly closing. On certain industries like manufacturing, you probably have a little bit more runway left on it. But for a lot of industries, analytics is becoming table stakes. So it's one of those where you can certainly extract incremental value and competitive advantage, but the question becomes how much longer. So that was kind of the, the impetus of saying, hey, we got to get this going sooner rather than later. Do you have people in sales that are resistant to you know, using the reporting or taking advantage of your information? Or is it pretty like ingrained in the company culture that it's like, this is a tool and it's just, why would you not want to not want to use it? Or yeah. do you guys have problems getting adoption? Yeah, I would say anytime that you're going through a transformation of this magnitude, it's hard. And I would say, especially for other manufacturers, uh, I found in general, manufacturing in general, tends to be one of the laggards industry-wise and in uh, analytical maturity. And unquestionably, it's tough for no other reason than change is tough. And you're taking, you know, legacy legacy plants, legacy ERP systems, legacy process. Some people have been a company for decades, potentially. And we're asking them to change almost on a dime on their timescale how they do business. It's not to say that it's right or wrong, but what we try to point out is that, you know, as I always say, is that we have to acknowledge the past. We've been where we've been. We've been successful with where we've been. But there's been more change in the past two to three years than maybe you've seen in the past 15 to 20 years. And so in order to stay relevant, we really have to be ready to evolve. Not only evolve, but evolve quickly. So, but I have to openly acknowledge that, that that's hard. It's a hard, you know, that's a hard proposition for a lot of people. But again, it comes down to change management and managing not only expectations, but supporting that change. You know, change change doesn't happen by itself. You have to right. support that, and that's that's really what we try to coach through. In the way that we try to do that is by developing a product with our customers. So, as I'm sure as you could probably comment to, if you force something upon somebody, it probably doesn't get received too well. But if you develop it in conjunction with them and design it around their needs, at least I've found you tend to get better uh, adaptation. So you use the word product in there, and I'm I'm interested. Do you see like the outputs of your efforts, which it's it, it, primarily it's BI reporting, as I understand it? Do you look at that as a product that you offer to sales? Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, it's unquestionably a we offer a product in the form of you know the insight packages, but it's also the service the service that goes with it. Where again, we serve as like essentially internal consultants. To help them along because if, if you take just the product centric approach, you just deliver an insight package and you're like, good luck, you know, right? Have at it. But what we do is we deliver the product and then we partner with them and say, okay, here's what we see. And I remember you talking about this going on in the channel last year, and our notes show that you know there's been a lot of competitive activity in this area. So here's some of the questions that we have, and, and you're the expert. So what do you think? And what we found is that working together like that, we tend to get pretty good results versus just leaving these guys on an, on an island to kind of figure it out themselves because they, they virtually always know the answer. But sometimes it's up to us using these products and then offering the service is to ask questions that maybe aren't getting asked. And then a lot of times we find out that they know the answer. It's just you kind of you kind of have to ask the question. 
is that often like, you know, I was using XYZ report, like, could you break this down by county instead of just by whatever? Because I feel like there's a lot, like, I don't know, there's more people living on the east side of town and the averages here are <laughs> by the, yes. the whole county, like the whole, yes. but I really just need this one county because that's where everyone lives. And is that really, really underserved? Like blah, 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 <laughs> that kind of stuff. And yep. then you, you guys will go off and work with them to like mine for more of that detail than maybe you release that back into the product as a feature if it seems yep. like it's not a one-off or something. Is that, that kind of how it works? Yeah, it's actually a very fluid process. An example of what you just described is exactly what happens. They come to us with questions, but we also do it where we flip it around because a lot of the products that we create are more aggregate discussion tools. We don't design a lot within our, our, our primary visualization package to really get into the, the weeds and everything. It just becomes overwhelming. We have other tools like your traditional Excel pivot table to kind of dig into that stuff. Right. The exact example that you just gave, they will ask us those questions, but we will also flip the script and say, hey, we saw that, you know, the mechanical channel in the Northeast is, you know, up 50%. I'm just making up a number. And at a high level, you can see that. But when we segment it out, here's what we see. Not only when we break this down, you know, to this level, we see it specifically being driven by A, B, and C. And that gets to what I, I push heavily with my team root cause analysis. That's really where we provide value is by digging into it and asking questions like that. Again, operating from the lens of trying to solve a problem or answer a question or root cause something in conjunction with the business. Sure. So a lot of times we will ask those questions and at the same time they will ask us, which is it's great. It's amazing because you get the better solutions faster. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I've I've worked on uh, you know several different tools that have varying sophisticated means of doing root cause analysis and I think it's a really powerful way to bring some why to a what yeah. <laughs> that has happened in the past <laughs> most of the time why is really that's really where the money's at the the value comes in being able to understand why and a lot of times we don't have all the data we can't you can't know for sure but a lot of times I tend to say you know our guess, if they're just going to make a wag, a wild ass guess, then our guess, even if, as long as we qualify what ingredients went into the pie, our guess may be better than any wag that they're currently, they're going to make one already. If they're going to make a decision here and yeah. go off gut, there's maybe a chance they're right in their experience will say something, but maybe our elementary root cause analysis, which we can you know, improve over time, will actually be better. And we can get out of the total guessing game and start with something that's kind of a macro ballpark thing. And then over time, you can improve that analysis as new data becomes available, or maybe you learn about how two variables are related in the business and you can bring that you know knowledge into the system. Yes. I totally hear what you're saying. So it sounds like you guys, it's a nice mix of internal product plus services. And, and also it sounds like you, get, you guys do, you do good discovery work as well. So you guys are, you're not just responding to questions, but you're maybe asking them questions to get them, you know, to, to, together as a group, you kind of work through what opportunities may be latent that no one's talking about uh, by asking yes. questions, using data to do that. Uh, to, to yeah, yeah. It, and and the, the lens that we've been talking through this is really sales-centric, but this really applies to any group that we interact with, is that we have the same level of proactive discussion you know, with any group that we interact with. And in some of these, like in, in our market research side, it's 100% proactive. We're going out there and scouring for 
information and trying to tease out things that we see. So on that one, it's completely proactive. And then we bring insights into the business and say, what do you guys think? But the sales one is the most fun because let's be honest, there's no business if you're not selling anything and uh, nothing happens until sales is sales made. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get that. Do you guys, so you talked about other clients. Do you now, do you work at all with like the actual hardware? Is there any IOT type of analytics going on with the boilers and machinery that you guys create? Yeah, we're early in that process. Actually, uh, we're getting getting ready to you know go down that path very soon. On the hardware side, we tend to not have as much involvement. That's really more on our engineering group. But I think for any manufacturer product, our engineering group is probably going to be the most involved in that. But obviously, uh, we get involved in the discussions of answering the fundamental question: What are we actually going to do with this data when we collect it? Because, right, as you can imagine, is you know. IoT can spit out a lot of data real quick. <laughs> and it, it can become incredibly burdensome very quickly if you don't have a plan on how to sure. manage it. But then if you're going to go through the effort of managing that, you've got to be able to think, what are we going to do with this? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing that would come to mind for me would be, you know, maintenance, right? Predictive maintenance. Like, is it going to break down yeah. soon? And I worked on a, a cooling company that does cooling and... And really, as the guy told me, he's like, we're not selling refrigeration. We're selling consistent temperature to our clients. It's not really about coolers and all of that. So we need to deliver consistent temperature. And if we don't do that, they lose product. They can lose food, you know, whatever is being stored in cold storage. That significant business out. And I'm sure for you guys, it's heat. You know, you want to sell heat. So how do you get in front of a, you know, if there's a maintenance plan or whatever, you know, how do you, how do you stay on top of that kind of stuff? So... Absolutely. IoT. One of my clients used this word one time, which I, I now use all the time. It's like, we don't want a metrics toilet, you know? And, and I have <laughs> a great example of you can get to a metrics toilet really quickly uh, with every stat under the gun and like you know, how many ounces of water did move per minute through this pipe, you know? Like, That's great. Yeah. Does that help me do as a sales guy or a technician, you know, how, how am I going to use that information just because we can, there's a sensor on that pipe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, working yeah. Oh, there's a sensor. I'm, Let's put the data in a grid. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna have to borrow that. I'll, I'll give I'll give credit whenever I use it. But yeah, metrics toilet. That's a pretty good one. I'm, right. I'm adding that to the repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So tell me, like, where does it go from here? Like, you, you had mentioned, like, oh, the competitive. Uh, you know, it's, maybe it's closing, or maybe you guys feel like your competitors are all. Kind of maybe they're doing the same thing that you guys are doing, and we, we're all aware of where the data can be used to drive the business. Are there other places where you see, you know, design or technology, like I don't know, predictive analytics or machine learning, and some of these other new technologies that, that are out there to help drive predictions and things like that? Or are you guys leveraging any of that, or have plans to kind of look to the future? that look like i know you probably can't talk about everything but maybe broadly absolutely no i i would say that that's content that's definitely if it's not already being done then it's on our radar we've got a pretty talented team here that you know covers a lot of your traditional data science turf as you can probably surmise from this conversation is in addition to having those skills we're probably the most heavily focused on the business side so as we say we explore opportunities for a lot of this we always look at it again like machine learning great but we got to make sure we can, it's very powerful stuff. We got to make sure that you know, whatever we're embarking upon, because it's a, you know, we have, we have finite capacity, finite work capacity. And if we pursue something, machine learning, it means we're not doing something else. And it's not to say that's not important, 
But we really have to be able to answer that question again and come back to it because it's our anchor. What are we going to do with it? Because I love that stuff. I love the stats. I love machine learning, AI, all that stuff. If you're not careful, you can really quickly get into an academic exercise that we think is really cool. You know, oh, wow, look at this. We've got this awesome algorithm here that does all this magical stuff. And then the business looks at us and goes, yeah, so what? Don't care. How does that generate revenue? How does that improve our margins? How does that reduce our cost? How does that enable to build the sales pipeline? If we can't answer those base questions and, and we don't get alignment, that's probably the most important thing is executive buy-in on exactly what we're going to be working on, why it's important. Then we don't pursue it. But those things are most definitely, as with any analytics team today, uh, I think that that content is definitely being done and or on their radar. No, and you, and you make a really good point. The tools, sometimes I almost hesitate to ask the question, but it, it, I think it's an exciting space in terms of predictive capability and, and removing oh, yeah. eyeball analysis and tool time, what we call tool time in the design world. There's there. But at the same time, you make a really good point, which is, again, these are tools that need to be leveraged to service a, an opportunity or a problem. The, the goal is not to go do machine learning. The goal is to solve a business problem by which machine learning may yeah. provide a better it, reduce cost or reduced effort, speed, something like that. So I completely respect and, and, and I'm glad to hear that you guys are, are looking at that as not a leading step. Despite the fact, you know, everybody, you, you, you get a good, I know there's a conflicting signal out there. You know, I've been talking to people at the International Institute for Analytics about this. And at the same time, you hear a lot of stuff, which is, you know, if AI is not part of your strategy, you know, you're going to be missing out. And boards just want to hear that people are doing AI. At the same time, you've got academic exercises going on. You've got people trying to take on massive, like, we're going to shoot for the moon. And it's like, you don't even have an airplane yet. Trying to go to the moon with this thing, show a small win if you're going to do an investment in AI. And it's okay to go, you know, to try it out and say, let's do a small thing, but let's try to solve a business problem or have some definable output that we're, that we're looking to do here such that we're not just writing code and doing experiments. <laughs> I mean, there's a problem with like, people putting this on their resume. You know, it's like people just want to have machine learning. You know, everyone's a data scientist now that uses analytics. We all want to see oh, yeah. science now. And, and so that's, that's a scary, I mean, it's scary in the sense of just wasting opportunity and wasting money because at some point your smarter competitors are going to be saying, this is a, a new hammer. Let's find some nails that we can use for it. Yep. But, you know, yep. but we need to be the right nails and it needs to be the right application before we whack at it. You know, it's not just yep. jump in and <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I really like your point because again, if my team's listening to this, they will laugh because they say, listen, we are professionals of this trade and the tools that we might want to use might not be the right tools to use for a specific job. I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. It's like, it's one of those core philosophies that I have and share with my team. Also too, is, is with the AI. I think that you came in a very astute observation there and comment in that I think a lot of companies do feel compelled to have to make significant investment in AI like today. And it's not to say that there's not merit. There clearly is plenty of merit and plenty of potential there. But kind of to your point, I really believe that it's much more beneficial and you really minimize the risk of project and budget bloat and minimize overall project risk. If you take that small bite and try a little bit, right? Right. And try a little bit more. And you get the win, socialize the win, get right. the executive team comfortable because I've done it on the analytics side. I went for a big bang approach. And, you know, after nine months, people were like, hey, man, where's, uh, where's the output? 
all you need is get bit by that once and you realize that yeah, sm- small quick wins are very very effective because at its core it's really important to get executive buy-in and a lot of executives are not willing to wait nine months or a year or something when they're expecting to see it you know, three months i totally agree with your sentiment when you talked about the wins, like, do you have a, and, and I totally understand if you're, you're close to it, it may be hard to, to remember those, but like, is there a particular story or time where something in the product and the insights that you guys put out to your customers that it was like a real win, like a sales guy said something to you, or maybe an executive said something to you about how this moved the needle. Like this was a memorable moment for us. Like I changed a customer's mind with this or you know, we closed a sale that we never, we never would have even been looking over here if we didn't yeah. know. You have any like anecdotes like that you can, you can share? One that we had recently, again, just for confidentiality purposes, I can't get too deep, but sure, sure. Um, we did have one recently where we just basically revamped our insights packages that we distribute to our, our internal team. And we really, really gathered feedback. We had version one, we gathered a ton of feedback you know, kind of refined, iterated, got got feedback, you know, without making it a major release. Got feedback, refined it, refined it. And then what we did was with a small group, we got that beta in their hands and they look at it and they're like, and this is great. This is exactly what we need. Because what we were doing, what we found was everybody, and I'm sure you've experienced this, everybody wants their own cut of things. You know, everybody wants a certain view of a report or they want certain insights or whatever it is. And it's great, but if you have limited resources, really high-powered resources like an analytics team or data science team, you got to look at the opportunity cost of kind of doing all these one-offs. We were getting a ton of report bloat. And, and you know, as I tell my team, you know, I mean, anything derogatory to, uh, to the BI guys in this comment, but from my team side, I, just, I always tell them, we don't create value if we're just creating reports. Right. We create value when we're actually partnering with the business to extract insights, identify opportunities, and you know, just all that stuff that goes with it. Right. So what we realized, though, is that you know, what started out as a nice, clean, three or four-page insights package had bloated up to like 20. And you know, I'm sitting there like, guys, this is, this is not meeting our original criteria. And essentially what we did is we went through the rationalization effort to say, okay, we've got all of this stuff spread across you know, 20 pages. We can actually distill it down to four pages, still give you the exact same information, but it might not look the exact way that you want it to look. And so the question becomes, are you willing to deal with less stuff and maybe have it look a little different, but you get it in a much more concise package that you're actually able to use and process? Because what we found out is that a lot of people were getting these packages and getting the reports that they want, but they weren't actually using them to right. drive decision-making because they, they kind of to the paragraph or uh, the uh, block of text story before they look at it and they're like, I don't know what the hell to do with this. And so we would dial that in and, and it just, it's, you know, we spent a screaming success. And so it's really nice to have it where something like that, you see the evolution of it. This was just one of the things that we had and this was kind of a side package. It wasn't our primary, but it's become a primary now because it's so effective. Would you say that when you talked about reducing this, so is this like a, is the report like a PDF or is it, do they access it through a browser, the, the insights package? Yeah, we have, we have the option to do both. We distribute initially via PDF, sometimes along with our comments, if there's really, really big stuff in there, we'll say, hey, we see this, here's a driver, here's a supplemental package. A lot of times it's PDF first, and then if they want to go on the web and start interacting with it, they can do that, which is nice, but the reality is a lot of them, don't do that, which is understandable. You took it from 20 pages down to four. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So same, I mean, same information. <laughs> this is a really good point. And 
a lot of times I think the, you know, I've frequently had clients come in and they're, you know, with data products and their concern is information overload. We've heard this a lot of times. And, yeah. and the irony is that, you know, the issue is not usually information overload. It's usually a design problem that the, the information is not presented properly. And because sometimes you can increase the density and increase the utility and usability, not the other way around. So like, in fact, removing data can actually make it worse. A basic example of that is when you're trying to compare you know, A and B. If A and B are not in the same, what we call a viewport, like in a browser world, it would be within the browser window there. When you require someone to toggle between two screens, they have to change context. And visually, your eye can process the information a lot better when it's within proximity. And so sometimes increasing the density actually will give you a better design. It takes more care in how you do it. But it's not always about information overload. Oh, it's too crazy. And, and, you know, they may not get it on the first time, but your salespeople, if they're looking at this stuff weekly or monthly, at some point, they're going to be pretty uh, comfortable with this. And, and you have to look at, use, you know, yeah. I always tell you know, my clients, you need to look at the usage frequency as well, because if it's going to be used a lot, you can actually get more detailed and you can really push the, what you might see as complexity or the information density can go up because they're going to get familiar with the format of the layout. And typically, the density is actually going to probably improve the utility as long as care is given to the choices. But you know, having that eyeball comparison without having to change pages and all of that, typically, you're going to give a better story you know, as a broad rule. So I, I like hearing that you, know, you guys went down. You went down in page count, up in <laughs> density, and return a better you know, ex- user experience uh, at the end. So that, that's great. I think we're about done here. I don't have too many other questions for you, but this is like super great. I, my, one of the reasons I contacted Jason is because I, I remember seeing this quote. Jason is like a category five hurricane in the data analytics. Yeah. I'm like, all right, who the hell is this guy? Like no one talks like that. Like, superlative. But I started, you know, I started yeah. your stuff and, and, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, watching your LinkedIn social posts and things like that. So where can people yeah. find out more uh, about you? You're obviously on LinkedIn. You know, I can put LinkedIn in the uh, show notes and stuff, but are you on uh, Twitter or any social media places they can follow you? No, I'd say uh, I'm not on Twitter, but the best place unquestionably is going to be LinkedIn. Pretty involved there. And I do like to engage. If you want to direct message me with questions, just talk, meet up, connect, whatever it is. I welcome that. I, I love the platform. It's a great family. I just really started using it, I want to say maybe nine months ago, really getting into it. And it's just been, it's been great Meet, meeting guys like yourself. Cool. It's absolutely phenomenal. Cool. Yeah, I'll, pu- I'll put a uh, link to Jason's LinkedIn profile on there and you guys can find him. And I, and I recommend if you're in the, especially if you're in the internal analytics type of role at your company to follow Jason and check out what he has to say on there. So this has been great. Thanks for coming on the show. Let's, let's, uh, let's I look forward to meeting you at some point in person. Dude, thank you for uh, having me on, man. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.